Welcome to a new Cycling Legends podcast, Fitness and Wellbeing Show. My name's Chris Sidwells, and my guest today has been advising some of the world's greatest cyclists and many other athletes for, well, as many years as I can remember him. Um, hello, Nigel Mitchell. Hiya, Chris. It's nice to see you. Nice to see you. We've been, we've known each other since the early days of Team Sky, I think 2010 or 2011, right from the start. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you, you were the nutritionist there, I'm for BC. Just, but... Our listeners might not have uh, know so much about you. Just can you give us a, a resume because you're not working in cycling now. So, so tell us a little bit of your your last thirteen years. Oh gosh, so uh, I'm a clinical dietitian by training and uh, trained in the uh, early nineties. Worked in the NHS for quite a long time, uh, but my passion were always really in sport. So. Over 20 years ago, I, I transitioned more into the, the sports arena, but still maintaining uh, clinical nutrition and uh, uh, doing some, uh, still working in the NHS just on a uh, consultancy basis. And then as opportunities have, have, have progressed, then I started working with British Cycling in the early noughties. And uh, when there was the opportunity to work with the new Team Skies, it was in uh, 2000 in the uh, 2009 2010 as the team were then being launched uh, I was really one of the first uh, legitimate uh, nutritionists to be working in pro cycling at that time so I worked with uh, 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 Team Sky on quite a few projects quite a few Tour de France wins uh, we're wanting different opportunities but still quite keen to stay in cycling so I went to work with who is now uh, EF Education. Worked with those guys for six years, so I did eleven years in uh, in World Tour cycling. Um, but while ever I was doing that work, I was also always working in other areas as well. And it's been really interesting to see how things have developed in cycling. But I was also working in uh, British athletics, working with triathletes, working with the British sailing team. And so some of the work that I do is with the UK Sports Institute, where I supervise and lead other nutritionists. And I currently also uh, have an academic position at Leeds Beckett's University. Uh, but one of the reasons I moved out of pro cycling was that when I worked in it, I really enjoyed that opportunity to work part time there in, and in a consultancy role. And as things progress, the demands what the teams are wanting now is to employ people full time. And some of the teams now employ, you know, two or three nutritionists. And uh, it's it's fantastic to see how it's gone from teams not really taking it that seriously to the, the investment that teams now have. Yeah, because you 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 were on the on the road. Well, they are. They're now on the road with them. And um, each yeah. rider in such as the Tour of France is getting an individualized menu every day. Work yeah, out. So, nutritionists, doctors, chef, all working together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in some some of the teams, they're going to that level of uh, of precision, and uh, yeah, we we would do that on special days, special stages. We might plan 
the real minutiae of the of the feeding, but the teams have been wanting to go to that level of detail across the board now. So it's yeah, it's uh, it, it's really interesting to see how it's gone. And then you know we can see uh, recently where there's been this really big increase, uh, this really increased interest in the higher carbohydrate feeding within races as well, which is. Uh, uh, which is fascinating because I don't. I'm not sure if this is a, is something that is a reflection and supporting the way that racing's going, or the opportunity to do this type of feeding is making the racing going as it's going. If you get what I mean, so the racing's mm. becoming a lot more explosive, which really does require a lot more of that quick carbohydrate. Uh, but it's been in the last few years that these sort of products have been available. So it's interesting that the tactics are changing, and whether or not the nutrition's influencing it. Or the tactics are then influencing what people are needing to do nutritionally. I'm not. I'm not too sure. I think they work together. I think they, uh, um, like you say, over the last few years, uh, pro world tour pro cycling has become like junior racing. But that's because, mm. like the DS is saying, everybody's mm. so good now that you've got yeah. to, you've got to start attacking from like the world championships used to be a war of attrition, didn't it? The men's yeah. road race world championship, yeah. people dropping off the back. Eventually, a group gets away, but now. Teams are using people to mm. weaken the other other domestics, yeah. the other team helpers, and you you, you cannot all the fat oxidization. Um, if you if you optimize that, all of that in the world mm. won't keep you, won't fuel you, will it? No, only not a that level thing of, you can do with yeah, fat oxidization. Not, that yeah, absolutely. I mean, when when people are needing to be working at such a high intensity, you know, closer to their VO two max. The body has to use more carbohydrate, and it's a real—it's really simple. If you—if you're not providing it, then you can't do the work. And you know, back in the day, we used to be working on at what were considered really quite high levels of feeding. We used to try and work on about 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour with our race leaders. The other guys wouldn't have been eating as much as that. Whereas uh, some of the uh, uh, some of the sort of models now is working on more like 120, possibly 140 grams per hour, okay. and it's really it's really interesting area because one of the things we can do, and it's one of the bits that I've been doing in some of my academic work, is we've we've actually had athletes in the labs, and we can we can actually assess how much of that carbohydrate they're able to oxidize. And uh, and so we can use techniques where we can say if we're feeding this person 100 grams of carbohydrate per hour when they're exercising at this intensity, then they're actually burning 90% of it or 80% or or whatever it is. So we can we can really dial it in, really precise for those uh, uh, for those real elite athletes. On a, on a separate tangent, I'm throwing this one into you. Um, it, it has have. The use of ketone drinks, um, being able to fuel this at high intensity racing. Yeah, so the, the, the ketones sort of come in. It's it's still building in popularity. The ketones are not as great for that really high intensity, but it can be a sub. It can be a supplementary fuel, in particular helping to feed the brain. So including some ketones with it can help, but the. But the trend at the moment in professional cycling is using ketones more around recovery right. and uh, and helping altitude training rather than in uh, actual fuel in itself. Some people like to use it as, as fuel, but a lot of people are using it more around the recovery side. And you know when uh, when they've been used from that perspective, a lot of the riders find it really beneficial. 
like at altitude camps or within grand tours, using some of the key terms to help with that. That recovery seems to really help. Uh, but I'm sure, again, you know, I've used ketones from a fueling strategy to supplement where within within uh, riders, and I'm sure there's that that still happens. But but the main thing is having the high carbohydrate to support those higher intensity bouts that where riders going. But at the end of the day, one of the things that like when in you know when I go back ten years. The philosophy did tend to be is that for the first sort of three or four hours, people would be really trying to conserve as much energy as they could. And then mm. the last 40, 50K, that's where you were trying to really have that that higher higher explosion. But that's definitely not how it's going now. And, and what we may have done, if we've got people that were going in the break, we give them some higher carbohydrate feeds within uh, within the break. That the, the trend's definitely going for much higher feed in. And one of the big reasons is because of how fast, as you say, they're almost racing like juniors. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's sort of your resume and a bit, a little bit of a window yeah. on on world tour cycling uh, at, at elite level and everything. Um, one of the things we talked about, we're coming into winter now, and um, yeah, you know, you keep yourself fit. You've done triathlons, yeah. and you, you come from a cycling family. Um, yeah. And you've got some. You always had some. You always been in that space where you 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 give some useful tips to people uh, and how to look after yourself in the winter. Um, one of the things we we talked about before is how uh, there can be phys- there are physical, emotional, and this was a surprise to me, anthropological barriers that that change our attitude. Not barriers, but the things that just change our attitude to working out in winter. <laughs> I think I think the important thing is to see these as influences rather yeah, than rather barriers. than barriers. It, yeah, Wrong and word. it's it, it's it's interesting because as we get into the winter, then people's energy expenditure, the amount of energy they're using, goes down. And a big part of this is that you know we're not doing as much exercise. And one of the reasons is that if we look at how how we evolved, it would make sense because we got into winter then the availability of food is less. So actually, if we've not got as much food there, then then it's natural for the body to slow down a bit. One of the issues that, that we have, and, and by, by doing that, that helps us to conserve energy. But one of the issues we have today is that we can still be going, right, it's getting to winter and I'm pre-programmed to sort of slow down a bit. But we've got this overabundance of food, and we can get this as a bit of a mix, a bit of a mismatch in that. In that, whilst on one hand we're sort of pre-programmed to be doing a bit less, on the other hand, we're also the body's telling us to store energy. So if we've got this abundance availability of food and energy, then we might be doing less exercise, but people will actually tend to eat more. So people have to think about this quite carefully to ensure that we don't get that balance too far out. And you know, it's always been the thing in the off-season, people might gain a couple of kilos, but it's very easy for people to gain four, five, six, seven, eight kilos. And if we do that, we're then really trying to play hard catch-up. But if we understand that our bodies are saying to us, you know, eat a bit more, do a bit less, because we're trying to get ourselves ready for when there's nothing at all. And we just have to, okay, uh, I understand that, but what I'm going to do is keep an eye on what I'm eating. And I am going to look at how I can plan in this good regular exercise, not that I'm necessarily training for a competition, but I'm going to want to maintain this exercise to maintain my function and help a little bit on the energy balance. And the emotional side is when... (laughs) 
you know, days like today where we've got uh, we've got storms coming in, it's just miserable, you know, going out. So, yeah, we, we'll all have done it, put us kit on, stared out the window, waiting to see if it stops raining, it's not stopped raining, and we've gone, gone back and had a cup of tea. So, so we have to plan in other other forms of exercise and and do it really quite strategically. So like I was saying to you before, Chris, when we've when we've finished our conversation, I'm going to go on the turbo for 40 minutes. And I know that I need to really look at, at how I how I bring that in and how I enjoy it and and make it part of what my routine is. And and um you know yeah that works for you. Do you do you use any of these apps that because uh, now people have you know, turbo trainers become yeah. attractive. It used to be a pain, didn't it? You know, yeah. Like, oh, well, I, I do. <laughs> yeah, well, I do joke with it. I mean, I actually think that some of the apps, uh, some of the fitness apps that are out there, are really fantastic for people. Uh, you know, things like Swift and things like this. I think where you you combine in the social aspect with it, I think are, are brilliant for a lot of people. I personally don't use them. And, and one of the reasons I, I use, uh, I've got a smart trainer and I have it programmed for specific workouts uh, of what I'm wanting to do. But one of the reasons I don't actually use the apps is because I do like the suffering on the turbo. And <laughs> it, might, it, it, it might be a bit old fashioned. I quite enjoy that. So for me, you know, I just use, again, I have, a, I have my iPad there. And then on top of that, I'll have another screen where I'll be watching. I usually watch uh, the uh, cyclocross that's been on on the weekend. So I'll be right. watching some yeah. cycling yeah. and then I'll do my workout. But I think I think the thing is, is finding what works for you. Yeah. And and the great, the great thing with the fitness apps is that it creates a community. Yeah. And by creating that community, if that's getting people more active, then it's fantastic. Yeah. Do you, I mean, there's one, you're talking about that you enjoy the suffering. I, I was once... Um, <laughs> I'd been on the turbo train and I was uh, speaking to Michael Hutchinson and I said, yeah. I'm beginning to enjoy riding the turbo. <laughs> and he says, if you're enjoying it, you're not doing it properly. <laughs> uh, it's supposed to be an instrument of torture. Well, but, the, the, so I think the caveat is that what we have to be careful of is that we don't make something so miserable yeah. that we're actually put off doing it again. Yeah. We should always be doing it where we finish it going, you know what, I could have done another five minutes. Yeah. I could have done a bit more. And this is why I think the warm down is very important on a turbo. A lot of people will not do a warm down. They'll, they'll beast themselves whatever how long they're doing it, mm. but then they won't do a warm down. And the big problem there can be is that you finish it and you go, that was really horrible. And then you've psyched yourself out from doing it again. Yeah. So it's so important with any of these that you do finish it and you go, you know what, that were a good workout, but I'm looking forward to the next time I do it. And again, that's a bit of a mental shift, but people have got to do that. Otherwise, they do it, they sicken themselves, and they never do it again. Yeah. One of the big changes for me for a turbo trainer was was something visual. Um, you're not staring at the garage wall. Uh, yeah. So my, on my laptop, again, because we're both tight, and we haven't we haven't <laughs> Swift. Uh, I I got a I, I'll shout out to them. Bike the world. It's a it's a free YouTube channel, and just every climb in the Tour of France, the Giro, everything, um, people put yeah. on there. So it's 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 a really good thing. The other thing we talked about going into winter is your diet, because you said we we naturally try to we we naturally eat a bit more because of the time of scarcity. Mm. But you were talking about quality over quantity. What what do you mean by that? 
Yeah, so so I think again the the challenge we can have is people are, uh, are uh, restricted on time and often budget, and and so it's easy to go for you know what we're understanding more about these processed and ultra processed foods. And what I'm suggesting is that people should be really getting more of the nutrition from from real foods, and in particular. The, one of the issues with the ultra-processed foods is that they're really energy-dense and nutrient-deficient. So in other words, they've got a lot of calories in them, but they're not necessarily giving the, the nutrients that we need for health. And we've, we've, there's some shocking data that's been coming out that nearly 60% of the energy that's consumed in this country is now coming from ultra-processed foods. And there's been research that's shown that when people go on diets that are high in these foods and they they gain a couple of kilograms of body weight and they've got adverse metabolic profiles. But when they go on diets that are very low in them and more on whole foods, then the reverse is, is complete. But I think one of the things that confuses people a bit is what do we mean by processed foods and ultra-processed foods? And for us as humans, our digestive system isn't isn't as good as some other animals. So a lot of our digestion actually takes part outside of the body when we cook in and we're preparing and we're making food. And so we've got a lot of the foods we eat, there's some aspects of processing in it. So if we look at if we look at something like a loaf of bread, there's some processing that goes into that. Uh, if we're looking at things like some of the traditional sausages, there's processing that goes into it. It's really when we are then putting ingredients into this, some of the additives that are going into it that we don't, we wouldn't really recognise as as ingredients that we would have in our kitchens, or when we're looking so at it's the not a herb or a salt. Or no, it, it's it's just a pure chemical. Dimethyl um, No, whatever they are, there's loads, there's yeah. loads of them, and I'm, that's not my expertise because I try and avoid them. Chris, mine's, yeah. mine's around food. Yeah. And and it, it's when we're having some of these that actually when you break it down, you'd be struggling to define them as foods. And yes. and you know, the 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 designed very much to encourage us to consume more of them. I mean, there's some of the theories around like with some of the flavorings where you'll have some sort of a uh, a crisp type product, but the flavorings are very much of a of a protein, but mm. there isn't any protein in it. So when you eat it, and your body starts to digest it and absorb it, it's going, I thought there was some protein coming here, but but there isn't. So therefore, I want you to eat more of it. And then that encourages uh, us to, yeah. to eat more of it. Yeah. And, and and we're just really starting to understand more and more of, of some of the issues and the dangers of these ultra-processed foods, Where whereas when we're looking at the whole foods or some traditionally processed foods, like I was saying, butter, uh, bread, things like this, then actually that's what we should be forming the main part of our diet on. And then when we're looking at the quality side of it and looking at one of the things that we're understanding more about is from a health perspective is the uh, uh, the role of what we call these phytonutrients. So the phytonutrients are this class of nutrients that are not really considered like vitamins or minerals, but these are active compounds within foods that are for, that give us things like antioxidants, for example. And 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 again, 
by eating the, the the whole foods, then we're getting much more of these. So, you know, one of the things I want to uh, uh, promote with this is things like, uh, uh, and I know you wanted to talk a bit about uh, uh, plant-based food as well, but foods such as uh, pistachio nuts, which yeah. are a really good source of protein. When we're looking at foods like this, then what we really want is foods that are mainly brightly coloured, tomatoes. Tomatoes are really high in something called lycopenes. And again, research coming out showing the benefits that these lycopenes have on our blood vessels. The, the, the thing that's difficult with these phytonutrients from a scientific perspective is that a tomato is going to have a massive range of these phytonutrients. So how do you select how? How do you test each one? And that's the bit that's a little bit difficult with, with it from a science perspective. But we are starting to understand more and more about the general health benefits that we just get from eating real food instead of all of these really highly processed food. And I'll go back to bread. When we're talking about bread, a lot, a lot of the breads that we do buy would be considered as ultra-processed. Ultra you know, the, the, if it's got a shelf life that's going to be lasting a couple of weeks, then that's not what bread's designed to do. Bread's really only designed to last for a couple of days. So again, if we're going back to more of that traditional type of baking, then that that tends to be more nutritious. And one of the things I've got very interested in, I bake it myself every, I don't know, every sort of two or three days is sourdough bread. Right. And uh, uh, I will put off making sourdough bread because I'll tell you it's a really, takes a load of time and that, but it doesn't really, it, it it's no, it doesn't take any longer than, than making normal bread as far as your time's concerned investing in it. It just takes longer to prove. So if you time everything, it works well. But the thing where I've learned with the sourdough is that because it's fermenting the the wheat, then that helps to break down, helps to hydrolyze a lot of the gluten. So it's a lot easier on the stomach. So when people talk about getting the bloating, it doesn't tend to be as bad as from the uh, things like the sourdough. And that helps to release some of the nutrients as well. And then the other bit with that, come and bring it back to cycling, which then brings things to Italy and food. If yeah. we look at traditional pizza, and I met my own pizza as well, what you know, what you do to make traditional pizza base, you actually cold-proof it in the fridge for about 48 hours, and that has the same effect. So when you're having traditional Italian pizza, it doesn't tend to be as heavy on the stomach as mm. some of the of some of the like the really quick pizzas that we get. Yeah. We, going back to the because um, I was I'm trying to go more plant based and going back to these yeah pro proteins. Can you give us some good protein sources? I know you said pistachio nuts, and actually we're on we're on Zoom and it broke up a little bit about that. So if you want to talk about those again, and, and one of the things you were telling me about, there's a lot of um, antioxidant nutrients uh, and things like selenium and zinc, which I think people yeah. are deficient of. Can you can you can you just tell us yeah. about what does selenium do? Yeah, well, selenium is involved in a lot of the metabolic processes and helps to support our, our immune system. And, and it's difficult to know if you have deficiencies with these. But again, eating foods such as nuts, such as seeds, these are, these are great sources of, of all these all these trace elements like the selenium. And yeah, they when we're looking at people wanting to, even, even if people are not wanting to go full plant-based, uh, but are wanting to be, as people refer to it, like this flexitarian eating eating yeah. less meat, then especially if people are active, if they're, if they're uh, doing a lot of sport, then they want to ensure they're getting, getting the best protein. And when I, when I was training as a dietitian, we were trained in that 
plant-based protein were just second-class protein compared to animal-based. But actually, a lot of the plant proteins are still complete. Uh, might not have exactly the same ratios as something like uh, an egg or milk, but it will contain all the amino acids. So things like soya, things like the pistachio nuts, uh, things like buckwheat, uh, 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 quinoa, these are all really, really good uh, 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 plant-based proteins. And, and and again, what I always say to people is, you know, is is try not to eat a food just in isolation. So when we mix some of these together, then that gives us a really good combination of the uh, of the different amino acids and pro- proteins. So one of the things I like to make a lot of, or I I use a lot, is a is a mixed grain. So I'll have things like uh, pilled barley, pilled spelt, quinoa, and uh, and I'll put some buckwheat in it. And so you cook all of those together, which I just put it in the rice cooker, cook them together. It gives really great flavor and texture. But then what I'll do with that then is I might finish it off by put it by sprinkling some pistachio nuts on as well. So I'm just getting a really big range of protein and different nutrients there that are going to ensure that I'm not just getting all the protein, but getting good carbohydrate and some good fats as well. Uh, just one thing, bringing in rice cookers, because uh, that's interesting. Because I can remember you on Team Sky buses with your, your with your rice cooker, uh, yeah, all the time. In fact, you were giving them away, weren't you, at one time? Yeah, I gave them to them. I've lost, I've lost so many rice cookers where I've given. I've I've moved on from rice cookers now to these. Um, electric pressure cookers chris all right so so the the electric pressure cooker you can use it as a rice cooker but you can also you know use it to cook things in quickly and or 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 slowly because they're a slow cooker and I, i recommend these to athletes or very busy people because you can get up on the morning you can pour all your food in all your ingredients in that you're wanting to cook your meal you can set it for how long it needs to cook you can set the timer and then you can go off for the day you come back and you've got a, you've got your meal perfectly cooked and, and ready to have I've just i've just got some of the uh um middle distance runners that i work with that have just gone to south africa for a training camp and that's one of the things they've taken with them is a pressure cooker so that they can be organized and you know one when they go to bed on a night they put all the stuff in to make the porridge yeah. have the porridge in the morning and then they can put everything in that they're going to have for the dinner go off and do the training they come back and the dinner's there but we we started using these pressure cookers on the bus uh within professional cycling so that we we got a you know a hot meal uh with all you know with proteins with carbohydrates etc in it for the riders when they came back when they came back from a stage in the tour and the good thing with the pressure cookers because everything's contained then basically no bugs can get into it so that you're re- really reducing the risk of any um uh, any illnesses from uh, any any sort of uh, uh, food spoilage or, or poisoning. So, you know, put it on your Christmas list to get a, an electric pressure cooker. Uh, the the do sm- I I I actually have two or three at home. I have a small one if I'm only doing something quite small, and then I've got a six liter one which will cook for about eight people. Brilliant. And um, talking about your third tip, um, it's something to do with strength and conditioning and prehab, which is something that all athletes, weekend warriors, anybody who just wants to yeah. stay fit, us gentlemen that are getting on in years, <laughs> like me and you a little bit, not much. Yeah. Um, 
we need to we need to build preserve muscle and and keep our bodies straight and keep everything in, yeah. nice in a straight line and and you you were talking about and i mean i i use some home weights but uh, you were talking about bands last uh, yeah bands. yeah I, I, tubes. I, I, I know you used to use it <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean I've, it's interesting because i've what actually used bands? the I've, I've used I've used them for years. As I was saying to you before, I used to use uh, inner tubes, old inner tubes, and then I'd I'd use them uh, for resistance for different exercises. But you can buy, and I bought them now. Even though I, you know, uh, I, I did have the inner tubes. Uh, I bought a range of different thicknesses of yeah. elastic uh, elastic bands. You can buy some long ones. You can buy short ones. And, I, and I, I'll take these with me when I'm traveling and you can actually do a whole body workout with them. I think the problem became very popular during lockdown when people couldn't go to gyms and you and you might not have a load of equipment at home. Uh, but you can use these for, you can if you've got like a nook on the wall, you can use it to pull down, to do pull downs for your back and your, your rear shoulders. You can use them to do presses. You can use them to put more resistance for squats. And I think for... I think that they, you know, they, they were developed and evolved from a, uh, a rehab perspective. But I, I think from a general conditioning point of view, I think they can be really useful. So I did, I did a forty-five minute session first thing this morning, just a circuit session where I got some uh, uh, some light weights. I'm using these uh, uh, elastic bands for a lot of the exercise. Uh, again. You know, as we get a bit older and we've abused this body, things we have to really look after our glutes and our back. And I found that since I've been using these, then uh, I'm able to run sort of like four or five times a week. Whereas before I started doing this, I was struggling with running, with getting hamstring pulls. And, uh, it, you know, I just wish that I'd really started doing this 30 years ago. <laughs> and then I might have, uh, you know, I might have been better at running. I might have been, I wanted to do something with my Achilles tendon. That stops me running. I've got something wrong with my right foot. But anyway, that's an yeah. aside. Um, I, I'm just doing the round of physiotherapists at the moment. And, everybody does <laughs> and actually, the pain is doing the round of my foot as well. Sometimes in the, tendon, sometimes <laughs> in the side of the foot. Um, one of the things, we're, we're recording this on the 13th of November. And tomorrow, the 14th yeah. of November, I didn't know this, is World Diabetes yeah. Day. And diabetes, type 2 diabetes, I mean, type 1 diabetes, there's not much you can do about it. It's a genetic thing, isn't it? You, you, get, you get it. And if you've got it, you, you're going to have to take insulin for the rest of your life. But type 2 diabetes is something that, that can be affected by lifestyle and brought on by lifestyle. And um, But there is a lot people can do to ward that off or even change yourself from pre-diabetes to normal... And also can, help it, yeah. Yeah, so people can even reverse it. I mean, I I, I worked as a, a diabetes dietitian uh, quite a few years ago, yeah. and and that were really where we were starting to see this big increase in type two diabetes. And let's just that one of the things is you you even within we can say type one and type two. So that type one is where it's insulin treated, where you've got this insulin deficiency. Uh, for whatever the reasons that is, uh, quite often it's an autoimmune response as well as yes. something genetic, but it's mainly auto autoimmune. And then we've got the uh, the type two, and 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 basically with both of these, what we're seeing is that we've got a a, a chronically raised blood glucose level, and 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 what we know is that by having a, a this raised uh, blood glucose level, it does damage to our blood vessels. Uh, you know, it's like to so the small blood, blood vessels in their eyes, our kidneys, our feet. And what we need to do is get a better blood glucose control. And 
with the type two, for a lot of people, this is the body is not producing as much insulin or the insulin they're producing is not as effective. And this can, and at one time, this were really associated with aging. But what we see now is that if people have got a very poor diet, very inactive, overweight, they can still be producing plenty of insulin, but it's just not been effective. Mm-hmm. And so what we can do with people, what we can do for people, most that, people... Is that what insulin resistance is? Yeah, that's insulin resistance, Chris. Yeah. So your insulin resistance is, is where, you know, your, your body's producing it, but it's not pushing that carbohydrate into uh, uh, in, into the muscle. What, what the insulin does, it, it's there to control our blood glucose levels. And what it does, it, it, it helps the glucose to go into the muscle where it's stored as glycogen, but it also... It pushes glucose into the uh, into the adipocytes into body fat where it gets stored where it can be you know where we can store it as fat as well. So, so in, in, insulin is is a really important hormone. That what we can do is if we can uh, reduce the uh, uh, the amount of cal- easily absorbed carbohydrates in the diet. Again, your processed foods, ultra processed foods tend to be very high in these. But eating more of the like the grains that we're talking about uh, and uh, doing more exercise where we're getting a more normal body weight, but we're actually burning, we're actually using some of our fuels, then that can reverse some of those symptoms of type 2 diabetes. And when I was working clinically, I'd, I worked with more than one patient who came in where they've got type 2 diabetes, but it, well, they, were, they were quite young in the 30s. And, you know, they really put themselves on a strict exercise and nutrition regime and they reverse the symptoms of the type 2 diabetes. That, to be honest with you, is quite rare because to develop those symptoms, you've got to have been having poor lifestyle. So it's Mm. a big change for people to completely reverse it. Mm. But for people like ourselves, if we're just conscious of eating better nutrition and being more physically active, then... It may not prevent us from gaining t- uh, uh, diabetes because this could be just part of our aging. It could be just part of that progression. But what we're doing is we're doing the best for ourselves we can and 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 uh, and maximizing our health and opportunities and reducing that that chance of developing that the metabolic conditions such as the diabetes. Yes, yeah, because so, one thing I didn't know is you just said, and I know we we, we slow down producing a lot of things as we get older. But uh, we 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 slow down using uh, insulin, and it, and it's it's not as effective as it was before. I didn't know that. So as you get older, it's even more important to yeah, hundred percent, Chris. I mean, there's a couple there's a couple of other bits with it as well as we're getting older, and we were talking about the strength exercise. What often happens is as we get as we get older, then uh, you know we're not doing as much exercise, so our muscle mass reduces. If our muscle mass is reducing, then our system, with muscles metabolic, our system's not as metabolic. Mm-hmm. So that does increase our chances of having metabolic issues such as type 2 diabetes. And so, again, that resistance exercise with good quality protein is helping to maintain our function and our muscle mass and helping, helping from a metabolic perspective as well. Right. Well, thank you, Nigel. You really set us up for... Um, for uh... Uh, for winter, I'm off to buy, out to buy some pistachio nuts now. Uh, and get your own, get your old dinner tubes out as well. Chris. Get me old dinner tubes out, yeah. <laughs> uh, go around to Marshes to get some off off of him. Um, thank you very much. You're going to go on your turbo training now, so I won't keep you any. Longer. I am. I'm going to uh, have a little coffee and go on my turbo. Yeah. All right. 
Well, uh, thank you very much, Nigel Mitchell. It's been really useful. Thanks, Chris.